the great thing about more businessy books is you spend hours and hours in the company of someone's thoughts. And if that resonates with you, then it's a natural step to go further. People kind of talk about a book as a business card and kind of denigrate it, I suppose. But no, at its best, a book can be the ultimate business card because you're spending hours kind of giving someone a chance to figure out like whether the way they see the world aligns with yours. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. We're back. This is the TMBA podcast. Happy Thursday morning, boss man. How's it going? It's going good. I have an amazing interview to share with you today, Ian. One that I personally was inspired by. Today's guest built a multi-seven-figure, 45-person juggernaut of a business on the back of a podcast and on a daily creative ritual, which to me sounds like the dream. It's like the Dan and Ian dream. You, you got the scale and the operations excellence coming from the boss man. And you got the dreamy daily writing session <laughs> from myself. <laughs> you mentioned a uh, schedule. Uh, do you know who uh, Rob Dyrick, is that how you say his name is? He started DC Shoes. So DC Shoes, these are like the skateboarding lifestyle brand. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Something came up on Twitter the other day where it basically showed his schedule. And he like, basically down to the minute catalogs how he spends every day of his life. And he like puts it in these buckets. So it's like his wife time, his kids time, his workout time, his work time. And says like, it makes me happier basically when I can chart out my life and like understand that if I miss my meditation or my workout or my family time, like how that affects me. So I'm just curious to like what degree people are doing this because I think we're all trying to like keep an internal kind of spreadsheet of this stuff, but he's actually writing it all down. Pro or con, let us know your vote. We'll discuss it here on the show. Speaking of discussing things on the show, check out dynamitecircle.com slash events. We are finally able to publish some of the upcoming events that we'll personally be attending. We've got a big event coming up in Mexico City. And also, I've got my eyes on an infinity pool in Playa del Carmen. I'm actually picking out my flowery bathing suit on uh, Amazon.com <laughs> as we speak. It's the dream of ocean breeze and uh, chilling in an infinity pool at Cabana that is keeping me going through these hard grind you got me on, boss man. Yeah, it's just called normal work. But I'm glad you're looking forward to a break from it. One thing I'm really looking forward to is after DCBKK, which is an event we've hosted for quite some time now, there's typically a group of attendees who sort of hang out in a small neighborhood in Chiang Mai. And there's something magically intense about that and cool. Maybe I wouldn't want to do that all year round every month, but Mm -hmm. being able to kind of just hang around, let the information absorb and then bump into people who are doing similar things on similar journeys, that's a pretty magical situation. So I, I saw that kind of movement come up where a lot of people that live in Playa, there's a lot of founders that live down there inspiring us to come join them. I was like, man, you know, you always think about that when you go on a trip. What's the trade-off here? What am I going to 
put off, but I just thought, man, that's so hard to come by, that kind of magic that you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where these conversations are going to lead or how they're going to inspire you that I was like, man, I'm going to go to amazon.com and buy myself a flowery pair of shorts and I am going to go down and let serendipity do its magic. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a cool idea. Definitely interested to hear. You know, I was back, I was in Playa back like, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And like, there wasn't a lot of it going on yet. Because I got bumped into like two or three entrepreneurs, but like for the most part, it was still like very much a uh, a resort town. And Playa, I guess, as I understand it, is the jumping off point to diving over in, uh, I think it's Cozumel, right? Yeah, that's right. So it was like a port town and now it's being taken over by entrepreneurs. And I can understand why. It's beautiful. Accommodations are relatively inexpensive. And so who doesn't like Mexican food? It's incredible. And your own time zone. So yep. win, win, win. It's also easy, similar to Chiang Mai, you know? Yeah. It's easy to go there and get set up and get started. And like I said, I, I wrote this story. People were talking about, hey, what's it like to move back to America? And I want to do a whole episode about this because I, I do think it's interesting expat life versus being back home. But I was in a cafe the other day in America and I hear some kid telling his friends that he was going to use his severance money to move to Bali and start a web startup. And you know what his friend said? He's going to build an app. All right. And you know what his friends did? What? Nothing. Nothing. They just acted like he was saying normal things. I think it kind of is now, man. Everything's changed. Yeah. If you go to a podcasting conference and you're like, we're the podcast for location-independent entrepreneurs, I'm pretty sure the response nowadays is, isn't that just entrepreneurs? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but you know, it, definitely things have changed. All right, let's talk about lifestyle, but we've got a question here at the top before the interview. The question is this. I see a lot of focus, and this is a question from a DCer who we're going to discuss this at DC Mexico too. So shout out to the DC for providing us with amazing prompts here. I see this focus on scaling up businesses and building out teams, but what about staying lifestyle focused and being successful? Do you see people out there working halftime with flex schedules who still make good money? Hmm. I like this question. So first off, let's define good money. We did it in a previous episode calling it four times the professional salary of wherever you live. So there's my first answer is like a lot of people who do this are actually just using arbitrage. And that's a pretty good strategy. It's definitely a shortcut to say, I work flex time. The ultimate like parody version of this is the life coach who lives in Bali. And the reason is, is you can live in Bali for like two grand a month and have a good lifestyle. And so you only need one client. Yeah, that's a good arbitrage, right? Like, yeah. That's pretty lifestyle And then you can stair-step your whole way back to, you know, Lisbon or Mexico City or whatever and just have a couple clients. So that's the first way to do it. Ian, what do you got in terms of people who are making good money? So in the US, call it 200 grand a year and staying lifestyle focused. A lot of this for me is like contingent on your experience level. So like, I think if you've worked in industry for 10 or 20 years and you're good at what you do, pretty much anybody can do this like as a consultant or like some kind of, you know, agency model or like freelance model where you just kind of pick and choose the jobs that you want to do. Also, if you can see this coming down the pike, and now that I feel like we're old enough to see it, I can. 
this is like reason to work hard during your career is because opportunities like this come up. If your goal is to do like what I did in high school, which is basically do the bare minimum. If you do that in your career, these opportunities don't exist for you, basically, because you're just average. No one wants to hire like an average consultant. They want to hire like the best consultant. One of one, that expert, a lot of professional services, like a lawyer who focused on this particular moment of internet business or a naming expert for startups or a design expert that like used to work at Nike, right? So now you can basically say you worked at Nike and have a big client list. Pick and choose what you want to do. So I think anybody that's like worked in a career for like 10 or 20 years really hard at some impressive places, you can do this. One other option we have written down here is just simply rich. The most common scenario I see with a lifestyle focus is actually wealthy people. And so in our listenership, what that looks like is typically seven years of excellent execution. So that's working hard, like Ian said, working smart, not spending your money. We talk about a lot. Having a good starting point in life in general, you know, being decently adjusted, although sometimes a little maladjusted helps. And then the good team. That's the operations part. This is our classic answer on the show is the best way to get the lifestyle is typically to build the powerful business. But I do see a lot of exceptions. One is what I'll call the faithful lieutenant model. So basically doing the above, hustling hard for and it doesn't need to be seven years necessarily. Nowadays, you could do it in two to four year time frame. But a lot of other priorities on hold in life, maybe and really focus on business and then kind of find lift in that business and then get the faithful lieutenant to operate it. Faithful lieutenant is just your operations director, your general manager, someone that you can profitably hire and they can sort of manage all the freelance and the client flow. Typically, I'll see publishers do this online, consultants, people with a sort of a small portfolio of websites. You do things that you're passionate about to improve your portfolio, but not necessarily scale that team. You know, the other one I just put on the list, Ian, is I see a lot of team members that work for companies, this new generation of companies, results-focused, location-independent, digital native that have a great lifestyle. Back in the day, it was sort of like, there was a lot of practical reasons to become an entrepreneur. But maybe nowadays, it's more of like a live it, breathe it kind of thing. If you really believe in entrepreneurship, if you believe in your vision, if you want to work for yourself, that's the better reason to do it other than if you just want to make good money and have a good lifestyle, I think you can do that pretty effectively through a job nowadays. One final question on this piece. What about agency owners? A lot of our listeners are agency owners. Yeah, us included. <laughs> agency work is tough work, man. A lot of times like the cost of goods or like the cost of delivery is like pretty high in an agency. Generally speaking, that's like some kind of labor cost. So that's like, I need to design this. I need to source this person. And if your goal is to spend as little time as possible in the business, well, then your time might be more valuable somewhere else. Cool. So if you're making over 200 grand a year and working less than 15 hours a week, send us an email. We want to hear about it. The other thing about this, Ian, is you can be seasonal about it, right? You can think about it in terms of a few years sprint, a few months, a few weeks. A lot of people have this idea that you work your ass off for four years, so you don't have to work your ass off for the next 40 I think there's a lot of truth to that rather than looking at it as this like chronic idea of like hours per week, per month, per year. 
but rather like really going after opportunities with a kind of an intensity that might be hard to see if you have a job and, it, and the job is like this kind of consistent chronic thing. You might put everything on hold for a few months to build a product or get an idea out into the universe that could make all the difference for your life. And I mentioned that to encourage people that have that little spark of inspiration in their minds to go for it. Like those are the moments that can define the rest of your life. One more, Dan, example that I see people like making a really good income without doing much, and this is investing. But the problem with investing is like you need to have done something remarkable to get the funds to do the investing. So I know several people that do like hard money lending. They don't spend a lot of time on it at all. Uh, A lot of the deal flow comes to them. They have good lawyers that write up contracts and then they just lend out the money for ridiculous uh, margins. So that's another way to do it. But again, you have to have done something quite remarkable to build up the nest egg to be able to invest like that. Cool. Well, drop us an email. We're Dan and Ian at tropicalmba.com if you have any insights or anecdotes about that. I'm, I think it's equally ambitious to scale up as to scale down. I think any kind of like just intentional business design to me is, is really cool. Speaking of incredible business design, today's guest basically took a topic he was interested in with a friend, started a podcast, started writing about it, and built an incredible multi-seven-figure business. We've both met Rob. We both met the Robs. They're amazing guys, and what they've built is incredible. And hopefully, you'll get some inspiration from it today. So Rob Dix and Rob Bentz started the Property Podcast about a decade ago. So they're proper podcasting OGs at this point. I remember first hearing about the story of the Property Podcast in 2013 in Berlin. We were at a DC event and the Robs come up to us and say, we love the Tropical MBA podcast. We love what you guys are doing. We started a podcast about property you know, at the time, I was like, wow, podcast. You guys started a podcast. That's amazing. And I remember the time they told us their download figures. And I was like, wow, they were just crushing our download figures. Back at the time, you know, there was definitely this first mover advantage for larger markets. There wasn't necessarily a big market for location independent business owners. But if you were building a podcast for, you know, NBA fans or property owners, there's big audiences out there to be had as there are on newer channels nowadays. So anyway, just a little inside baseball there. Uh, and it's incredible what they've built off the back of the trust that they've earned through their podcast. And we're going to talk about that today. So their growing business is called The Property Hub. It's a UK-based online community and real estate acquisition and management business, now with a team of 45. Just a little bit of context for the conversation we're about to have, Ian. Rob wrote his first book, The Complete Guide to Property Investment, in 2016. And last year, he published The Price of Money, which actually helped him secure a two-book deal with Penguin, which is pretty cool. And he's going to talk about why he decided to sign with a major publisher instead of continuing to crush independently. On top of that, they've recently launched a fund for people to collectively invest in real estate. So Rob is laying out the framework for us, Ian. When are we going to start our fund? (laughs) Let's decide after listening to the interview. Rob definitely has no doubt, Ian, that one of the main drivers in building this incredible business was that very first book. So we've been 
presenting the podcast for maybe like four years at that point or something like that. And that book was basically just me writing down what I wish that I'd known at the start. And so it was at that perfect point in the journey where you know enough, but not too much. And you can kind of think back about to remember what it's like to know nothing and go back and in quite a structured way, explain a topic. It really hit, not in the sense of like, sort of blew up the charts or anything, but it's just like all these years later, it is still selling. And my mum will say to me, like, surely everyone who wants to know about this has had a chance to buy it by now. How are people still finding it? <laughs> it's the whole kind of, it's the ecosystem of various things. So we've got that, having the podcast plus the books, plus now experimenting with YouTube and just having, having all that reinforce each other has been really powerful. And so we've had a lot of people who sort of went from the podcast and then picked up the book. They've also had a lot of people I hear from who had the book was the first thing they found, like using Amazon as a search engine. And then that's what led them to the podcast and doing business with us. So the great thing about more businessy books is you spend hours and hours in the company of someone's thoughts. And if that resonates with you, then it's a natural step to go further. People kind of talk about a book as a business card and kind of denigrate it, I suppose. But I know at its best, a book can be the ultimate business card because you're spending hours kind of giving someone a chance to figure out like whether the way they see the world aligns with yours. Taylor Pearson calls that a parachute book. It just sort of goes up and it, it slowly floats. Like, of course, you're not maybe selling as much as you were the first year. Maybe you are. I don't know. But what was it about the content in the complete guide that you think resonates with people? It was treading a line between being realistic, but making people feel it's possible. So it's not necessarily the quality of the facts, the information, but the tone. And that's something that I think we've done the whole way through. In real estate, like in lots of kind of make money kind of industries, there's lots of people sort of like telling you how easy it is and how you've got to get in and you'll get rich and all the rest of it. And I think people are kind of tired of that. But at the same time, if you just kind of fully describes, actually, it's going to be really hard and this is going to be annoying and that's going to be frustrating and you just kind of do all the downsides, then no one's going to want to do it. So I try to sort of tread a line in the middle of going, look, you're not going to get super rich super quick, but it will work over time, you'd be realistic about it, but, and then take it and like break the information down really simply so people can read it and go, oh yeah, I get that. I could do that. And I think that's where it's connected with people. It's realistic. Yeah, this is something I can see myself committing to for the next five, 10 years and getting to a good place. When did you guys know you were going to be committed to the property podcast and was that the main property or did you have Property Hub at the time when you guys were like, we're all in? What was that moment where you're like, this is it? It happened really quickly. So like when we started, it's 10 years next month. So 10 years ago, podcasting, especially in the UK, was not really a thing. And so we had that first mover advantage. Like if you wanted a show about real estate in the UK, we were it. And so we didn't know if anyone did want that show or not. But then within literally weeks, we started like getting emails from people. I was like, oh, okay, wow, people are listening. Don't know how far in it was. I'm sure it was less than a year, but like we sort of, we threw a really half-assed event. We did basically, as like I said on the podcast, <laughs> like we'll be here at this time, come along if you fancy it. And a couple hundred people showed up. And that was just like, a, that was like the first what the hell kind of moment. And then you sort of see the impact that it's had like on the, we basically 
grown the business off the back of the podcast. Like if you turned off everything except the podcast, the business would be fine. If you turned off just the podcast and left everything else, the business probably wouldn't be fine. There was no like moment for that, but that was like a realization over a few years. What do you think is different about the property podcast than like the hundreds, if not thousands of others in similar niches with similar aims, with similar hosts? What's your diagnosis? Because there's a lot of people thinking about starting podcasts right now. And I'm wondering, should they just start a bunch of shows until, man, they're getting emails within the first couple of months? Is that an interesting way to find product market fit? I think it's way really significantly harder now. Maybe you have to grind it out for a year or more before you start to see any traction now. I'm not sure. Depends on why you're doing it. But if you, there, now there are so many podcasts, you need to be doing something a little bit different. You will start getting some kind of feedback. And maybe it's not loads, but maybe if it's just a couple of emails from people going, wow, I'm so glad I found this. Maybe that's enough to show that you're onto something. Yeah. But I think being, finding a way of standing out, whether it's in subject matter or tone or whatever it is, is so important because it's just like, I think a big part of what we've had going for us is the fact that it's the two of us. And so I think so, doing a solo podcast is really hard and doing interview shows, it's so hard to differentiate because yeah. there's a million interview shows. So it's, it's like you and Ian, I think it's such a great format because you've got the accountability built in and you've got someone to riff off. I want to talk about the business. I mean, you got some numbers here, mid seven figures in revenue, team of 45 people. This is a huge organization. Can you help us to give us a sense for what your guys' company looks like? Do you guys share it 50-50? Where are you all located? How does it break down by product? And we can use that context to talk about <laughs> some business stuff. We have got an office in London, in the UK, and where we've probably got about a third of our headcount and the other two thirds in Manchester, which is in the north of the UK. And it is all hybrid now, of course. Uh, but that's where our offices are. The main driver for everything has been kind of a, a consultancy business. Basically, we help investors buy rental properties. So we will go and secure rental properties from developers in some kind of bulk, negotiate a discount and pass that discount on. Tell me how it works. Because you guys conceived of this a while ago. What was the germ of that idea? Rob, my business partner, had been doing that for another company. There's not many of them. There's only like a few companies in this kind of niche in the UK, but he was sort of in, in sales for one of them. And like a lot of people go, oh, I could do this for myself. And I think he'll be the first to admit it was harder than he thought it would be to start with. But then of course the podcast really and everything else really kicked it on and sort of helped it become what it was. But our competitive advantage is just like we've given more away for free than anyone else. So all the marketing is free, it's content. Then the thing you're trying to sell people on is like, have a call with us and you can speak to someone for like 90 minutes, learn from them. They'll help put a plan together for you and that's free. And then if you like that, then you can qualify to start seeing some deals and we'll like, talk you through a couple before you see any so you know what to expect. And that's all free. And then when, at the point at which you see something and you like it, you get a week to do your own research and see whether like check that it really is for you. At that point, if you go ahead, then you pay us and you just pay us a flat fee for putting that deal together. And the discount that we achieve because we're buying in bulk and we've got these relationships is greater than the fee that you're paying us. Wow. So by the time someone's been through that entire process, it's not a difficult sell. 
the people who end up doing business with us uh, have already decided whether they like the way we see the world through the material we put out there. And then you kind of want to, through that whole kind of consultancy process, help them figure out if they are a good fit or not, because like, things will happen in anything where there are going to be challenges. And so you kind of want to go through the process of saying to people, though, you're going to buy this property and immediately it's going to cost you money and it's going to be empty. And then you'll try and rent it out, but you won't be able to rent it out for quite what you think you will because it's the first time that it's being rented. And then at some point in the next few months, the tenants will move in and they will report a list of things that are wrong and you'll need to fix them. But you're kind of telling people all the things that are going to happen. So then it's just like, when that does happen, it's not a surprise. So that's great. But also all the people who are like coming in with a different expectation of what it's going to be like, they have a chance to bounce away before they start being challenging customers to work with. And so like, I'm sure our team could name a couple of customers who, whose like, name they don't like to see in their inbox. But for the most <laughs> part, whenever I interact with anyone who does business with us or listens to the show, they're just great to interact with because they've self-selected as our kind of people. Yeah, I've noticed that as well with uh, our recruiting business because our recruiters have worked for other recruiting companies and they just say, that this is a layup. Everybody's just so easy. <laughs> like recruiting is a cutthroat industry and they don't expect that based on their previous experience. And it's like, wow, man, listeners of the pod are so generous. They're so nice. They have such cool companies. Like this is a layup. You see a lot of people talk, like, talking about like, having a, like a value ladder, right? So like you have a, like a cheap and easy product to get people in and then you kind of like move them up. We're trying to get that in place now because we've, we've established a fund that people can buy into with lower amounts. But for the most part, it's an expensive product. You have to pay us a pretty hefty fee. What's going to be my average order value when I come to you ballpark? It'll be around about 5,000 pounds, so like six, $7,000. That's per property that you buy through us. So some people will come in and they'll buy one and that's it. And some will buy multiple a year. But then in order to pay us, if you're, you're buying an asset, which you're going to need... These are people with money. Like what, $70,000 probably. Yeah, yeah. Like to come and buy from us once. And so we're immediately excluding the vast majority of everyone just by kind of the stuff that we would charge for, we're not charging for. And so we, I always feel like, huh, there's, it works and it's, it works great and it's worked for a long time. But by kind of moving the line of w which you start paying so far away, You've ended up with something where like anyone else would look at this business and go, this is crazy. You should have five products priced like this and tiered and we just don't have that. That's really interesting. I mean, I don't think it's that strange. It makes sense because the lower down the value chain, the more complicated it tends to be. So with your forum, with your newsletter, affiliate deals, the fund, tell us about all that stuff. Is there, obviously there's money coming from the books. What are the other meaningful revenue streams for the business? The books are not meaningful in the scheme of things, but the fund is going to become meaningful. That We've only established it a couple of years ago. We're still getting it to scale at the moment. It's like funds come with a lot of fixed overheads. And so at the moment, it's costing us money. And you mean by that compliance and legal and stuff like that? All that stuff, yeah. So a lot of our, we need a bigger finance team, we do a lot of everything and people in that world are expensive. Our average salary is a lot higher than it used to be. 
the model can scale infinitely. So like you could get to like a billion under management with pretty much the same headcount for what we've got with like tens of millions. And so, but at the moment, it's just like, it's costing us. And so, but when it gets there, the idea is that that's the kind of product that helps us to broaden out because people aren't needing to make such a giant commitment. So the minimum investment is like a thousand pounds. Wow. How were you able to do that? Get around the uh, sort of, here in the States, we call it accredited investors. How are you able to take a thousand of someone's dollars for a speculative investment? In a very compliant and structured way. Very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) But that's been like a huge thing in its own right and a huge learning experience because like you're used to just kind of going on a podcast and saying whatever you think, whatever comes into your head at that moment. But then whenever we talk about this product on the podcast, we have to like literally read out a script if we're talking about it in a certain way yeah. because it is a, it's a regulated thing. So that's been something we're still trying to figure out now is like, how do you take that, which is very structured, and then without losing our style and our personality and what people like about it. And the 45 people that work for you, how do they break down across the organization? Our biggest teams are going to be finance, marketing, which includes like a podcast producer and videographer and people like that. And then there's a a sizable team to do like getting the transactions through. So transacting in real estate is a pain. And so as part of the service, we kind of kind of handhold people through that process. And so that's quite a people intensive business. And then you've got other parts which are to do with like the acquisition of the property and then all your normal kind of tech and HR kind of stuff. So it's there's no kind of like one department that dominates. It's just there's just a, a lot of moving parts, I suppose. What's your identity in the company? Do you consider yourself the CMO or the CEO? And how do you break down your energy across the five days of the week? This has evolved. So we started with like the two of us without like having titles because what's the point but kind of being like almost like co-CEOs and so like we'd end up kind of it was horribly inefficient because either we'd both get involved in something where only one of us needed to be or we'd both leave it to the other and it didn't get done at all and it just didn't really work and so then Rob the other Rob took on like the CEO title and is doing more of the business stuff and I did have a CMO title but then as the business grew, like we've got a CMO now who deserves that title and she's great and it makes no sense for me to have it. So I'm kind of floating around without a title. Uh, I'm a founder. So over the last couple of years, I've been heavily involved in setting up this fund, but I'm now trying to work my way back out of that again so we kind of got into it figured it out hiring in the people who are actually good at doing that stuff because i'm not and then getting back to doing as much of the content stuff as possible because really i want to be spending all my time doing the content stuff because that's doing the kind of like the business kind of the problem solving stuff is good fun but then actually going and implementing it and having to deal with all the challenges that come up day to day it's not fun for me. Fun for me is the creation. It's interesting. I really think a lot of us struggle. So my struggle currently is that I'm dealing with the operation that I've made on most days. 
And the Tropical MBA has been put on the back burner the past few months because, yeah, like operations, there's a lot going on. And I kind of like went on this whole operations deep dive. I feel like I'm ready to break out and just do a whole year worth of podcasts about operations. How much did you guys dig into like things like organizational theory or how often should I meet with my team and how do we hire and fire people? How did that emerge as you scaled up to 45 team members? Both of us are like learners and readers. And so like we've read all the books like Traction and all, like all the kind of the, the classic books everyone's read. And want to take frameworks from there, take ideas from there, want to make it work. I think where we've both struggled historically is the follow through. You read a book, you get excitable about some kind of meeting rhythm or something else, but then to actually take that and put it into practice and enforce the good meeting discipline and, or enforce people providing notes in advance in a certain format, whatever the example is, like that's follow through, it's consistency, it's having that the operations, whereas neither of us are true operators. The fun bit is kind of coming up, is kind of going, oh yeah, let's do this. But then you want someone else to be there to actually make it happen. Wherever things have fallen down in the past, it's always been lack of follow through. We work together like incredibly well and it's like couldn't wish for a better business partner, but we don't between us have that kind of like perfect kind of like visionary integrated thing. So I think as time's gone on, we've just had more people come into the business who do have those skills and really, really over-index on those skills elsewhere in the business because we recognize that they're lacking in ourselves. Hey, this is Dan. Just to remind you, if you love listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new website. We just put it up. It's over at tropicalmba.com. Since we don't do news segments on the show every week, the most consistent way to hear about the stories from the thousands of founders that listen to this show every week is to sign up for our newsletter. And as a thank you for doing so, we'll send you a free copy of our book before the exit, some templates that we use to scale and hire in our business, as well as some other goodies. You also receive one email a week that outlines some of the key things that are happening in our community, at our podcast, and with the founders that listen to this show. So check out our newsletter on our brand new website over at tropicalmba.com. Can you bring me into your content team? I want to take some inspiration from you about how I can improve my pod. We record the podcast every Monday morning and we work with a producer, which is great, as well as having a sense of what's interesting and so like going through like an hour long recording and pulling out the 20 minutes and that works as well as that i think he's the voice of the audience i suppose he was a listener of the show before he became our producer and so like he's super in touch with like well he's always he's always thinking like as a listener here's what i'd want to know or you've just said that but what about this i don't understand that part of it so he's he's does he do it real time is he like in a recording like we're in right now we're we're looking at each other in riverside.fm mm-hmm. is your producer's face here as you guys record we record audio only we always have but he's there it doesn't chip in that often but occasionally we'll say uh guys maybe you should come back and contextualize this and like say say this so i can drop it in earlier to say what you're about to move into something like that 
And then how do you guys know what you're talking about on Monday morning? Are you thinking about it all weekend? What's the process for generating that outline? We've got a rough plan going maybe one or two months out. So we'll do a record for like an hour and a half and then spend maybe half an hour talking about what's coming up and kind of moving things around. I think as as time's gone on, it helps that we've been living in such interesting times over the last few years because it's like an investment show. There's always something happening in the world that we can be reacting to that people want to know about. I remember like there was a stage years back where we would be kind of looking at what like we've said everything there is to say. There is nothing else. What are we going to do now? So this is interesting, this reaction format. I have podcasts that I listen to. I'm sure you do too, where I didn't even like look at the primary thing. I just want to hear the reaction, the secondary thing from people like you. Because I think like that contextualization is more interesting than maybe the primary source. Because we get inbounded from various sources, like whether it's people contacting us on social and the forum by email, whatever it is, you got to pick up on patterns of what people want to know. That plus whatever's happening in the news drives it. And so with the aim is every, every week we aim to put out a podcast, a YouTube video, and a newsletter. Those are our three kind of pieces of core pillar content. They all refer, kind of like cross-refer to each other. So if we get those three out, then that's the baseline. Anything on top of that is great. Your newsletter is really good. How? What's the process around that? This has been through lots of iterations as well. The most recent one, I just write it kind of, the framework has changed, but the basic framework is now do do like a a sort of a deeper dive into one news story and try and like break it out into, it's kind of inspired by Morning Brew and things like that, where it's just kind of taking something and giving you a few easily digestible bullet points on it. Plus one line mentions of a few other news stories, plus kind of like, pushing people towards the podcast and the YouTube video that's gone out this week and like something funny to close it. And that's it. I'm curious about the maker schedule. Walk me through your week and how your energy gets uh, distributed. I've not nailed it, but it's the typical thing of like, the longer the day goes on for, the less anything creative is to get done. And that's partially energy levels. I tend to sort of be best in the morning and then go gradually downhill. Um, partly stuff happens. And where I personally struggle is that in business, there's always something going on. And over the last couple of years in our business, there's always always been a hell of a lot going on and a lot of uncertainty because we're doing stuff for the first time. So we're setting up this fund. It could be something that's pretty minor, but it ends up like being a big deal because it's the first time we've done it. And where I really struggle is if there's something that's happening, even if I'm not directly involved with it, it kind of takes up my headspace and kind of stresses me out to the point that I then can't be creative. So I end up doing the podcast is done pre 9am. The newsletter I write pre 9am on like a Wednesday or a Thursday to go out on Friday. YouTube really struggled to fit in because you need to have a block of time and also relative quiet, which is hard to come by when you're working from home or <laughs> if you're in the office. So I think the way I'm going to go with that is like, sort of just like block out like a day every couple of weeks or like a half day every couple of weeks and batch it. My ideal, which I'm getting closer to, is to just have no calls before, say, 1 p.m. and have mornings for the 
creative stuff. And in recent years, that hasn't been possible, but I think it will become possible soon. One of the things that f- me up, Rob, is this international staff I got. Yeah. It's like, I am very inspired by what you're saying. And I can like, I feel emotional when you say that, like that 1 p.m. thing, because I want to believe that I can be creative around all these calls, but there, I feel like I'm creatively like diving for grenade shrapnel, you know, like I get on these calls and then we start writing something together on the call because it is important. Everything the team wants to talk about, everything is important. And it just feels like these creative ideas are the first thing to go. They're the most delicate, you know, yeah. and they're hard to justify to other people because they don't exist for other people. They don't exist for your customers yet. They don't exist for your products. They are potential for the future. And um, I feel like I've really been letting my creative side down lately. I blame the internationals. <laughs> when I was out in Thailand, the UK wouldn't wake up until one o'clock. It was oh, perfect. It's the best. So yeah. you need to shift yourself to wherever you're going to be a few hours ahead of everyone or the majority of people on your team. I don't know how else you do it. That's the way. Otherwise, you need discipline and stuff. Surely everyone, everyone must struggle with this, right? And if you like using creative stuff to drive a business is awesome, but also uh, there's an inherent challenge in that. Like, if it's your job to just write books or do YouTube videos or whatever, and there isn't such a kind of a ops heavy business behind it, that's got to be easier in terms of like managing your energy and what you do. But then if you can, it is cool the fact that you can use content to do a business like that. So it's, it's a conflict worth managing, but haven't quite figured out how you do it yet. And for a while, we were trying to kind of go, oh, we'll, we'll have to, as you grow up and like, you have to kind of get other people on the team doing some of the creative stuff and we'll do this. But then I was like, no, like, this is what I like doing. It is interesting that you haven't hired for that. You have 45 people and you're slogging away at newsletters. I didn't expect you to say that. I thought you were going to say, I found this brilliant ghostwriter who writes in my voice. Hmm. But then I wouldn't get to write it. And that's the fun <laughs> bit. We went through a stage of like of trying to do that. Went through a stage of like, well, let's like remove ourselves from the brand. And so like the brand stands alone and it's not about us as people. But then people connect with people. So that doesn't really work. And it comes down to the fact that all well, that this is what I like doing. And I wouldn't hire myself for most jobs in our business. But yeah. I would hire myself to do this. So it kind of makes sense to do it. Tell us about your book. Why did you sign a book deal? You they didn't recognize you, the talent you had 10 years ago. <laughs> Why give them an opportunity to bask in your glory at this point? Two reasons. One is it's an experience. So most people don't get to do it. And a lot of people really want to. And so it's like a two book deal. So I try it out. And if it sucks, I won't do it again. I'll go back to doing, doing what I'm doing. The other reason is there's more potential upside. So you're not going to get a Mark Manson, James Clear type results by self-publishing for the most part. You get the yeah. freak kind of fiction breakout. I'm not picking you up in the airport. Exactly. It doesn't guarantee the outcome by a long shot, but it, makes the, it means the outcome is possible. It's called The Price of Money. And it explains like what the hell is going on in the world. What's one answer? What's one answer that you have for us? What is going on in the world? We're 50 years into a financial experiment 
that has never happened before. And at some point, it's going to break down horribly. Because if you go back in history, every financial system ends up breaking down horribly. It's just a question of when. And what's been happening since the 70s, it's been keeps getting pushed further and further, and there'll come a point where it can't be sustained anymore. The fun bit is predicting when that's going to happen and how it's going to break, which obviously is impossible. But I guess that's the headline. Final piece is uh, 20% of our listeners don't yet have a business. And I know you've been writing about this topic. They look at stories like yours and they're like, man, I want to head down that path. What sort of general entrepreneurial advice do you have for people looking to start in 2023? I'm always going to be guided by the content. That's my bias. And so there's all the advice about not following your passion. The advice was follow your passion. And then the advice became, no, don't follow your passion because no one wants that stuff. Do whatever people want. But I think it's, some people feel completely different about this. But for me, that's like, I have to enjoy the, the subjects. If I'm not interested in what I'm talking about, I'm not going to be interested in my business. And so it's about finding a way of taking what you are interested in or what you want to do and then just really like finding the angle that no one else is doing it, which is probably by going to an uncomfortably small kind of niche where it's like something so small that you feel like it can't be sustained. No one's bothered to do it before because they think there can't possibly be a market there. But the law of the internet is there's always a market there because <laughs> the, internet's so, the internet's so huge. And then use content to give people an idea of who you are. And everyone sort of wants to kind of come up with the business name and the logo and the domain and everything else. But people want to hear from people. And if you can start doing that a year or two before you really want to make it into a business, then all the better because there's no pressure. Because I don't think you can dictate how fast that happens. We were lucky that we kind of hit quickly, but that's not always going to happen. Rob, thanks for joining us on the TMBA pod. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Big ups to Rob Dix. You can check him out over at propertyhub.net. We'll have links to everything we've talked about, including Rob's books in the show notes. So any parting shots here, boss man? Getting ready to head to Mexico, man. We've got some flowery shorts to put on and a plane to jump on. We'll see you guys uh, next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.